Thank you. Good morning. Greetings to friends watching online. I am uh, sorry that um, the slides are not going to, uh, I guess, show up for the um, folks watching at home. And um, it's a great uh, passage this morning, book. We're talking about how God shows up in our weakness. And we're not, this is one more reminder, we're not slick professionals, but we are zealous and sincere in following Jesus and we're doing the best we can. So sorry about the slides. I want to just, um, before we get to uh, the, the message, the sermon, introducing you to 2 Corinthians, I want to just give a quick update on the possibility of uniting with Sojourn Church. Since February, we've been talking and praying together about the possibility of uniting with Sojourn and these two churches becoming next step in the process comes two Sundays from today on January 17th when the elders of our church will ask the members of our church to formally affirm via vote our intention to join together with Sojourn. If you have any questions about anything you'd like to talk about related to this or anything else, please contact one of the elders. We would love to hear from you and have a conversation with you about that. Well, this morning I'm reading just the two, first two verses of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1. And then this message is going to be an overview message. I hope this message will introduce you to uh, this 13-chapter letter. But I just want to remind you, these few words are God-inspired, spirit-breathed words, and may they give life to our souls this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that once more because we too are a church. We've gathered in the name of the Lord. We've been called by God. And this letter is intended by God to bring, right here in verse 2, grace and peace. So hear these words. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, who is there amongst us, in person, online, who is there who is not in need of fresh grace and peace? the peace of Christ. Holy Spirit, draw near to us now. Through this sermon and these words that you inspired and preserved to be passed along to us, I pray that you would impart grace and impart peace and exalt Christ and build in this congregation a deeper Christ culture, a gospel culture, we pray for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Well, as we assemble here in various fashions on this first Sunday of a new year, I want to ask, can anything good come from 2020? Right, New Year's has brought a chorus of good riddance to 2020, and for good reason, it, it was a stinker of a year in a lot of ways, wasn't it? I mean, who loves pandemics, 
political turmoil, racial upheaval, I don't need to go on. Our instinctive response to these things so often is just go away, leave me alone. And truly, there's nothing inherently Christian about seeking out trouble on purpose. But what about the trouble that you can't avoid? What about weakness and difficulty and suffering that you can't control and it's just there anyway? What is God up to in those places? Where was God in 2020? Was he working for good or did he take a vacation for the year? What if the kingdom of God is so different from the world that weakness becomes not an experience to avoid at all costs, but in the loving hands of God, a place to experience his presence and his power? What if Christianity is about following a Messiah who did not ride into Jerusalem on a war horse to steamroll the Romans, but rode in on a donkey to be crucified in weakness and then to live by the power of God? What if God's power is made perfect in your weakness? So we might just ask, where are you weak right now? What comes to mind? What if that place is the exact place God intends to show you his perfect power and grace and peace today? If all of this sounds strange to us, this is because the gospel is so very different from the culture that we live in. And the culture the gospel creates is utterly different than the culture that surrounds us in the place we live here. Second Corinthians highlights how this upside-down gospel culture can radically change a church. When it takes root in a congregation, this weak made strong culture changes the leaders and the members and the mission of the church. That's what 2 Corinthians is all about. As far as I can tell, this is one of the least preached New Testament letters, even though it has some of the most well-known verses in it. And I understand why it's a bit of a challenge to preach. It's very personal. There's lots of interaction between Paul and these people. It's very emotional and intense. And it doesn't sort of string together a bunch of topics like, say, 1 Corinthians does with lawsuits or sexual immorality and spiritual gifts and th things like that. You know, it's been my privilege since I've been here to preach through and to, as a team, have the, the, the leaders here preach through all but two of the New Testament books, and this is one that we haven't gone through yet, Second Peter being the other. So I guess I'm guilty of shying away from this as much as any, everyone else might be as well. This morning, we want to introduce you, the elders of our congregation want to introduce you to Second Corinthians. We'll 
read this greeting as we, we have and see how grace and peace can come to us, we'll think a little bit about the story of why this letter was written. We'll look at the outline of the letter and then four reasons why we ought to study this spirit-breathed letter together. So let me just provide an introduction to 2 Corinthians. Back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul was not one of the disciples who hung around with Jesus personally. He wasn't one of those first 12 disciples Apostles. Paul, in fact, was a persecutor of the church, but stopped in his tracks by the risen Christ and then called to bring the gospel beyond the Jewish people to the non-Jewish world. Paul ends up writing 13 of our 27 New Testament books. You can follow his travels in the book of Acts. Now, some people don't like Paul. They say that he's anti-woman, that he's harsh, and so on. But if you look carefully at the picture of this man you find here, he's nothing like that at all. Here we see a Christian who is intense but gentle, zealous but kind. He is resolute and passionate, not about his own comfort, not about his own safety, not for his own success or plans for his retirement, but to see Jesus exalted in the church and in his life. If you arrive here today, and you find yourself stuck in apathy, mired in complacency, this letter is good medicine for your soul. Back to verse one. Look there with me, please. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Let's think a little bit about Corinth. Corinth in the first century, as this letter was written is a city that had been destroyed and then completely rebuilt by the Romans. Over a seven-year period, Paul makes three visits to that city and he writes four letters to the church that he plants there. We don't have all four of those letters. In fact, the letters that we have are actually the second letter and the fourth letter, which confusingly we know as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is actually letter B in the series of four, and 2 Corinthians is actually letter D in the series of four. Those are the letters that we have in front of us. I want you to try to get a, a, a sense of what's going on here. And again, I, I apologize for the, the um, lack of having slides for those who are at home. But uh, if you can picture... A, a, a triangle, I want to try to explain a little bit about sort of the setup of the city of Corinth. So the city of Corinth is at the bottom of a peninsula in Greece. It's part of the Roman Empire and it's in a province called Achaia. All right? Its location, because, because Corinth is at the bottom of a peninsula but not quite at the bottom, it's, it sets itself up as a trade route for both trade going north and south and east and West. There were land routes and sea routes connecting with it. It's a prosperous city. It's very religious. It's a good place to get ahead financially. It's sexually promiscuous. It's a mixture of cultures. It's very cosmopolitan and international. There's a mixture and a blending of Roman and Greek cultures and Jewish as well. And the reality is no church caused Paul more headaches than this church. If you think life as a Christian in the New Testament era was one of 
bliss and happiness and smooth sailing, you're wrong. And this relationship between Paul and the Corinthians is, a, is the best illustration of all of that. To get a sense of this complicated relationship and this, this experience, try to picture a triangle, okay? The triangle's on the map, but you can, you can picture it in your mind if you can't see the map. Over on the west, the, the city of Corinth, bottom of the triangle. Over on the east, straight across the Aegean Sea, the, the east side, the right corner of that triangle, that's the city of Ephesus from which we, we learn about uh, through, through the, the letter to the Ephesians. That's in modern day Turkey. And then the top of the triangle is this region called Macedonia where familiar cities, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, that's up in this region of Thessalonica. So you've got Thessalonica up here and then you've got over on the west, you've got Corinth and then over in the east, you've got Ephesus. Paul was working and traveling in, in, in these regions. So here's kind of how it works. In the year 50... Paul arrives over here in Corinth and he spends 18 months planting the church. He then leaves to keep planting and strengthening churches and for three years he ends up straight across the Aegean Sea from Corinth in Ephesus. While he's in Ephesus planting that church, he gets news from Corinth that things are not going well in Corinth. There are factions and strife. There's immorality and lawsuits. Crazy stuff going on in this church. They're acting more like the Corinthians of their city than the Christ who is their savior. This is what happens in a startup environment. This is what happens when people become Christians and you try to create this church culture. It's continually pressed and, and, and shaped by the world around it and the world that we bring in with us. So in response to the trouble that he hears about there, in the spring of 55, Paul writes this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. It doesn't go over so great. A little while later, he makes a short visit to Corinth. While he's there, that trip goes very poorly. He'll refer to this in chapter 2, verse 1, as the painful visit that he makes to them. So he comes back to Ephesus, and, and while he's in Ephesus, he writes another letter, a letter that we don't have. And this is the one that's mentioned in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. He, this is often referred to as the severe letter. There, were tr there was trouble in Corinth. They were not responding to his leadership. They didn't respond well in person, so he tries a letter. That doesn't go very well either. And so he ends up traveling up to Macedonia. Now he's at the top of the triangle. He's waiting for Titus. He wants news of what's going on in this church in Corinth. Titus has been there. And while Paul is in Macedonia... He finally connects with Titus and, and he gets news of what's going on there. Now I tell you all this because as you read through 2 Corinthians, you're going to hear about all this back and forth and travel and I want you to have a picture in your mind of what this looks like. So after he hears from Titus, the latest update of what's going on in Corinth, he writes this letter that you have open in front of you, 2 Corinthians. He writes to accomplish several things. He's defending his ministry against a variety of threats and opponents. He's also raising money for poor Christians, probably in Jerusalem, and he's going to travel there as he, as he has to several other cities to, to collect that, that offering and personally transport it back to Jerusalem. Third, he's writing to remind them of his love for them. He wants to encourage them where they're making progress. And finally, he's just seeking to create a Christ culture in this church that embraces the paradox 
of a gospel where God's strength is revealed in human weakness. Those are some of the big things that are going on here. He summarizes this in chapter 12 and verse 9. Actually, Jesus does. When Jesus talks directly to Paul and he says these things, hear this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to unpack that more in a few minutes. So the outline of the letter is very simple. It's kind of three big chunks in these 13 chapters. Chapters 1 to 7, Paul defends his ministry. That's the big thing that's going on there. Now, in that, we get all kinds of great information about church life. We learn about repentance and reconciliation, about hope and holiness, about being ambassadors for Christ. Some of the most familiar verses in 2 Corinthians are right there in chapters 3, 4, and 5. This section where he's defending his ministry. Chapters 8 and 9 are a call to generous giving, that offering that I referred to a moment ago. And then chapters 10 to 13, this is really the the battleground between Paul and the super apostles. These super apostles who had infiltrated the church were winning the hearts of of the people away from Paul and away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of an overview and we'll unpack this in the weeks to come. This letter is not as well known, is it, as Romans or Ephesians or some of, uh, or even 1 Corinthians, some of Paul's other writings. But this letter has had a powerful effect on the church. It opens up the topic of Christian leadership in a profound and vital way. It teaches us to discern true Christian leadership from false Christian leadership. This letter will expose cultural misconceptions that we bring with us into our churches. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian leader, what it means to be a church, what success looks like in the kingdom of God. This letter has also provided believers over the centuries with dozens of well-loved promises. So let me give you this morning four reasons to study 2 Corinthians, four reasons to camp out here. Number one. Actually, before I do that, I want to remind you of the words that God gives us in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians is a means of God bringing that grace into your life. Bringing that peace into your life. How? How does it come? Well, first, grace comes to us from 2 Corinthians to enable us to embrace the paradox of God's power in our weakness. There's grace that comes from this letter uniquely to to empower us to embrace this paradox of God's power in our weakness. Now, what's a paradox? What is that? What's a paradox? A paradox is a statement which on the face of it seems absurd or at odds with common sense. It doesn't make sense. But when you look at it more closely it proves to be well-founded. Seems crazy, seems at odds with common sense, but when you dig a little deeper, you find it, it actually does make sense. Let me give you an example. Maybe over the holidays, you, like Leslie and I, watched one of the versions of A Christmas Carol, right? The Charles Dickens story that's been made into so many movies. If you, even if you haven't seen it, you may be familiar with the main character, Ebenezer Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge is a rich business owner, and Bob Cratchit, remember Bob? Bob is his overpaid, overworked, underpaid clerk, right, under the thumb of Ebenezer Scrooge. 
There's a paradox in this story. What is it? The paradox is that Bob Cratchit, the poor and overworked, underpaid clerk that he is, is actually the richer of the two men. Why? Because he's kind-hearted and surrounded by a loving family. And Scrooge is hard-hearted, miserly, and all alone. That's the paradox of that story. What's the paradox the gospel brings into view with regards to suffering? What is the gospel paradox of suffering? Here it is. It's the surprising fact that suffering reveals God's power and strength and glory in our weakness. Sometimes God heals, delivers, saves, and removes those things from us and we see his power and strength and glory when that happens. Other times he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. In fact, let's zero in on that passage. Turn to chapter 12 and I want to read these verses for us this morning. Chapter 12 beginning in verse 7. Paul is writing of his having had this extraordinary experience of being caught up to the third heaven, whatever that means. And he says in verse 7, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now hear this. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with Weaknesses. You will not hear that out in your world this week. Hear this. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you see how otherworldly the kingdom of God is? Now, we don't know exactly what this thorn is, but we know that it was painful. That's how thorns work, right? You know what it's like to have a, a splinter, to have a thorn in your foot, to have something that, that is, is, is in your eye and you just want to get rid of it. Paul pleaded with God to remove it. But rather than remove it, God has something else in mind and Jesus says to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. God's strength becomes more powerful in response to believers' weakness. If you don't believe me, read the Bible and see how this plays out in so many people's lives. Abraham and Sarah, you're going to be the father of so many people. They're going to be like the stars of the sky. He's 99 years old. His wife is past childbearing age and they have no children. That's weakness. And in that weakness, by grace, through their faith, they experience the power of God 
Isaac. We are children of faith of Abraham. On the face of it, suffering is bad. It's painful. And it's to be avoided at all costs. And again, we're not advocating masochism here or entering into suffering intentionally. But when suffering and weakness comes by God's hand with the Spirit's power, we can expect, you can expect today to experience God's nearness and his presence and his power in these things. Think about it. Have you ever heard someone say, I wouldn't wish, fill in the trial. I wouldn't wish that trial on anyone, but I wouldn't trade what God did for anything in the world. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever said that yourself? I have said that. Why do we say this? Why do people talk like this? They're talking about how God brings his presence, his grace, his strength, and his power in the midst of our weakness. Romans 8, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We want to be delivered from all these things. And one day we will be delivered from all these things. But in the now and not yet of God's kingdom in this world, his power is so often made known and perfected in human weakness. And so Paul says, this is, this is stunning. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He's in combat, if you will, with these super apostles who are boasting of their resumes, of their accomplishments, and of the high speaker fees that they charge this church to have them teaching. Paul says, I'm not having any of that. You want to know my credentials? I'll show you the scars on my back. That's what it means to be an apostle. That's what it means to be a Christian. So he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Are you fearful this morning, anxious, stressed out? Are you financially vulnerable, worried about money? Are you in need? Are you lonely, frustrated, where is your weakness today? Sick, chronic illness, what is it? Perhaps Christ is saying to you right now, my grace is enough. It's sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a good reason to study this letter. Second, to discern true Christian leadership. Chapters 10 to 13 are a goldmine for learning about Christian leadership. And this is timely as we consider possibly uniting with another church. It's a time to be thinking about spiritual leadership, church leadership. More relevant even to today, we have become by God's grace a multi-generational church. And I'm so excited about that. And Vince and Kenneth and I have a strong desire to impart a gospel-centered approach to leadership to the next generation here. We are so grateful for the many young people here in our church right now and the many young people already in places of leadership. And 2 Corinthians provides a Christ-centered vision for that Christian leadership, one not built on the American model of if it's big and shiny and bright and new, then it must be good. This is a very different model. 
It's built on the ministry of Christ who was crucified in weakness so that we might no longer live for ourselves but for him who for our sakes died and was raised. It's a wonderful study. Christian, distinctly Christian leadership. Third reason. We get grace from 2 Corinthians to grow in generosity. Beginning of a year, if your finances are in disarray, financial peace is a great place to go. We all want to grow, I trust, in generosity because the Spirit of God is at work in us. Just like with prayer, we, we never get to that place of saying, I, I pray too much. At giving, we always have that sense of, I wish I could be more generous. Chapters 8 and 9 are the longest sustained teaching about giving anywhere in the New Testament. We're encouraged to be generous, to be cheerful, to give systematically and extra locally. And what drives it? Again, I love how Paul thinks. Listen to chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become poor rich there's the incarnation there's the advent we were celebrating over the christmas season he was rich but here's the mind of christ he emptied himself humbled himself and died on a cross for us so that we could become rich in salvation here we see giving motivated not by guilt not by manipulation but by the grace of having been become rich in christ based on who he is and what he's done for us now, in turn, we want to be generous in response. And finally, grace comes to us to adopt beloved verses. This is a letter that is just full of beloved verses. What do I mean by adopt verses? Well, 10 years ago, our family adopted a dog. It sounded kind of weird I thought that was something you did with kids, but apparently it's something you do with dogs too. So we go through this whole process. We make an application and there are phone calls and interviews and vetting and all, all this whole process. And one day we came home with Eli, who became part of our family, our beloved dopey Labrador retriever. He became part of the family. You know, there are verses sitting right there in 2 Corinthians waiting for you to bring them home. Bring them into your mind and into your heart. Bring them into your Wednesday and your Friday. Let me offer just a couple of appetizers. But I want to encourage you, sometime this week, read through this letter. Highlight verses you want to hang on to and, and memorize. Chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but, a, but the Spirit gives life. Isn't that wonderful? Listen to chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, Christians like us, this is you, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes by the Lord who is the Spirit. Transforming power of the Spirit as we behold Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
That's just the beginning. Go find more on your own. Dads and moms, I want to urge you, encourage you, teach these verses to your kids. For me, I don't have kids at home, but I've got a good reason to hang on to these things. I wake up at night. I don't sleep well. And I've put a list of verses from 2 Corinthians next to my bed so that I can deposit one in my brain before I go to sleep. And then when I wake up at 2 in the morning, like I did last night, I can go back to that verse that I dropped in my head at bedtime so that there's something more profitable than the latest sports scores to reflect on in the middle of the evening. Get a hold of these verses. They will change you. Our series title is Old Made New, How the Gospel Radically Changes a Church's Leaders, Members, and Mission. And I I love the graphic for this series, that old stump. If, If new life could sprout from that old stump, maybe, maybe God's grace can sprout up in that place of weakness and suffering that you're living in right now. I hope you'll read 2 Corinthians. I want to encourage you, sit down and read it in one reading. If you're not used to reading scripture that way, you can read 2 Corinthians in less than an hour. Highlight, make note of themes, questions, and especially verses you want to hang on to. I hope through this series, the elders of our church hope that we as a congregation will fall in love with this letter and adopt many of its verses into our memory banks and lives. And I hope this letter can be a powerful engine to deepen a Christ culture here in our congregation. As the band comes back up to play, let's, let's pray. Oh God, I just confess and acknowledge when it comes to knowing how weakness reveals your strength and how that works out in my life, I I scarce understand even the beginnings of this. But teach us your ways, O God. Bring us grace and peace through 2 Corinthians on behalf of a crucified, now risen Messiah. I pray this letter would take root in our church in 2021. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's sing to the one who was crucified in weakness but now lives by the power of God.